All right, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time. Bless all that listen to this and hear this. We ask you to guide and lead us as we see what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 20, starting at verse 1. In the year that Tartan came in unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spoke the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth off your loins and put off your shoes from your, your foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian prisoners and the Ethiopians captive, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitants of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? All right, here's a very short section of scripture, and it talks about in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod. Ashdod is a city in Philistine, Philistia, over by the Mediterranean. And Tartan is the head general of the commander of a Syrian army. And he came to Ashdod to conquer it, and he, and he conquered it. And shortly thereafter, Tartan is going to lead Assyria into battle with um, Israel, or Judah more precisely, and Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings 18 through 19, we hear that story. And there we see that he comes and he besieges Jerusalem. During that period of time, he insults Hezekiah, demanding tribute. And we see that he accuses Hezekiah of trying to deceive the people because Hezekiah is trusting in God and listening to the prophets. He asks the people to make an allowance. He says that they will give them food. Uh, None of the other gods will have been able to be defeated by, were able to defeat Assyria. And he says all these things. He says at one point that he'll give them horses if they could even find men to to ride them. He's taunting them. Hezekiah goes before God and calls on him. Isaiah tells them to fear not and that they will be defeated. They send a letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah prays for help. And then in the end of chapter 19 of 2 Kings, we see that God sends an an angel to destroy 185,000 Assyrians in one night. It's, It's a... Fun story to read, fun story to see how God defends his people and keeps his people safe and delivers them in all of their events when they just trust in him against all odds. And that's what we need to be looking at. God is our defense. We say this so many times. How do we trust God? Do we trust God? And the whole point of this is, do we trust him enough to make him our defender? Just to rest. You know, and then so, so many times, oftentimes we try to defend ourselves. We watch how God will let us try to defend ourselves if that's our desire. But when we let God be our defense, just as it says in Psalms over and over again, 
God is our defense. He's our shield. He's our refuge. He's our, he's our strong tower. He wants to protect us and keep us. And we just need to be able to rest in him and honor him. When we let God be our defender, wonderful things happen. We, we watch him be able to defend us and keep us. And, you know, when we try to defend ourselves, God will say, fine, you want to defend yourselves? I'll let you defend yourselves. And he'll watch us bumble and fumble and make all kinds of mistakes. But when we let God be our defense and we just rest, rest in faith in God and God alone. And, you know, wonderful thing is when we just rest, God is more than able to be our defender. He's more than able to keep us. And all we have to do is trust and rest in him. And he will protect. He will guide. He will lead. Just as he did Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was looking at a total defeat. And yet God delivered him when he had an army against him that he could not handle, could not be able to, to defeat. God delivered. God came in to help. And in our story here, we see that they take this. And then the Lord told Isaiah, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your loins and put off your shoes from your feet. And he did so, walked and walked walking naked and barefoot. Now, this word for naked means to be exposed, to be clad poorly. Sometimes just means taking out the outer garment. Uh, so it could literally mean just simply that he walked around without his outer garment with whatever they would have considered underwear. And he walked around that way for three years, it tells us, to be a sign. And, you know, which is... In my, my opinion, I'm glad I'm not Isaiah and glad I didn't have to do this. Uh, but we look at this. It says, go and walk this way for three years. Being exposed, being laid bare, not properly clad. And he did this as an example to the people as he looked, as people looked at him and were able to see what God would do. And he was an example to the, to the people of what the Lord would do. And the Lord said in verse 3, Like as my servant Isaiah has walked around bare, naked and barefoot for three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and Ethiopia. So he says this is the example to those nations. God, through Isaiah and many of the other prophets, spoke often to the other nations, the ones that weren't Israel. And people have wondered sometimes, you know, did God tell people, tell his people that he would be ministering to Gentiles? Well, we see in Isaiah all, many, many times that he refers to Gentiles. He talks about the Gentiles. He looks, he talks about God being the God of the Gentiles, of God delivering the Gentiles, and really wanting the Gentiles to be his people. Why would he want them to be his people? Well, we're all one blood, Paul tells us. We all come from Adam and Eve. We all are created by God. And this is one of the things we look at. God created all people. We're all related. And God does not want us being diverse by different races or nationalities. God wants us to be one. He created one people. He chose Israel to be his people to minister to the world. All through the, the book of Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God said there's one sacrifice, one worship for all people. He said if the Gentiles wanted to come and worship him, they were more than welcome. And yet the Jews oftentimes made these requirements 
to say they had that Gentiles couldn't come in. They had to become Jews to be able to worship God. And that was never God's plan according to the scriptures. And yet God speaks to them. He, he tells them to turn to him. God judged the Canaanites and all the people of that area because for 400 years they kept getting worse and would not respond to God's message. So God destroyed them and put his people in charge of captive, taking them captive and killing them and taking that land and giving it as a promised land to the people. God has requirements on all people. God's law is written on our hearts. We know right from wrong when we just listen to God and try to obey him because he will say, this is right, this is wrong. We talk many times about how do we know we're saved? We know because we have a heart in us that God has made alive. He's quickened us. He's made it alive. And we were able to look and say, God, this is what you have for me. I'm, I'm looking for what you want. He gives us the power and strength. He, he indwells us. He indwells us and we are changed. He gives us a new heart, a fleshly heart for his heart of stone. He comes in and he indwells us. And because he indwells us and gives us a living spirit, we begin to be changed. We will see more and more what God wants us to be. We will become more and more like him as we lift up him. As we just live in him, he will change who we are. We talk about this often. It's like the, the pickle, the vegetable in the vinegar. It gets pickled, not because it do, does anything, not because it strives, not because it works at becoming a pickle. It becomes a pickle as the vinegar endues it and changes it. Because we are in Christ we will be changed. Just like the pickle, he is making us change. Day by day, he's changing us. And we become little bit by little bit more like him with each passing day that we stay indwelled in him and watch him do the work. And this is the wonderful thing about our walk with Christ. It is him that does the work. We surrender to him and he changes us. We surrender to him and he works through us. When we get to the Bema seat before Christ, we will have our works thrown into the fire. Anything done in the flesh will be burnt up. And anything that Christ does through us will be rewarded with. A wonderful blessing as he rewards us for all the things that he does through us. And we, all we have to do is allow him to do this. Wonderful gift that God gives us is just being able to, to walk with him, to, to keep him and just surrender to him and let him do the work over and over again just we said earlier he we are told to hide in him he is our fortress he is our strong tower all we do is say god i want to be yours i want you to guide i want you to lead and just sit back and all the ease and the ease of walking with god and seeking with him and following him then in verse 4 so the king of assyria led away the Egyptian prisoners and Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Israel, or Egypt, excuse me. And this is what they're saying. Assyria took them captive. And Assyria and many other nations in that day had a habit of shaming people when they were taken captive. And one of the things they often did was to strip them and, and walk them naked and this is saying their buttocks are uncovered. 
It is possible that Isaiah literally walked naked for that period of time. There are many people that don't believe that. The word doesn't always necessarily mean that. It, it could just mean that he was uncovered and, and walking in a shameful appearance. Or it could literally mean that he was uncovered completely because he was a picture of the captivity. Uh, hard to believe that that would be three years walking like that. But God was using a picture and a symbol. So we, he would have just been most likely in his own in his undergarments, walking around, being a display before people and saying, this is what's going to happen to Egypt. This is what's going to happen to Ethiopia. They are going to be led captive. They are going to be punished and brought into captivity. Verse 5 says, they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation and of Egypt, their glory. And this is one of the things that the people kept trying to use Egypt to be their help. Assyria was rising in power to be a great nation. Egypt, Egypt was a falling nation from, from their great power. And yet Israel went to Egypt to be their helper. They tried to use Egypt to, to deliver them. They wanted Egypt to care, uh, to be their helper, to work with them, to lead them into victory. And yet that was not going to be the case. God was not going to let Egypt be the one that would, could deliver them because they had rejected God and he was not going to let them be able to go to them. And so the people would, were now afraid. They were, they were shattered and broken. They were, they were brought to shame by the destruction of Ethiopia and Egypt. And their expectation was in Egypt uh, was in Ethiopia, and their glory, their, their desire was upon Egypt. They did not trust God. Even under Hezekiah and onward, they did not trust God. They kept turning to Egypt. They kept turning to other nations. They did not want to turn to God. We need to be so careful that we don't turn to the world. Remember, Egypt represents the world in many cases. And we, Israel, kept wanting to return to Egypt. They kept going, let us go back to Egypt. Let us go back to the world. And this is something that we need to be careful of as Christians. God has delivered us from the world. He has crucified us from the world. He has quickened us and made us alive spiritually. He is resting in, we are to rest in him. And we often want to go back to the world. And there's no returning back to the world. Every time we try to go back to the world, we don't fit. The world doesn't accept us because they know that we're not one of them. And we are not happy with it because we have tasted and seen that God is good. And we cannot accept the, that going back to the vile and the, and the mess of the world that, that we have. God expects us to be able to listen to him follow him and not go back. And, and during the Exodus, the children of Egypt kept wanting to go back. You know, before they crossed the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh was chasing them, they turned, turned to Moses and said, what did you bring us out here? There, wasn't there enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here? They had gone from being very happy that they were being delivered to accusing Moses of, of bringing them out to kill them. Then they get across the Red Sea, and within a day or two, they're at the, they're thirsty and 
complaining already and God gives them water and they're ready to go back. Then they're complaining they're hungry and, and they, they want to go back to Egypt. They go, we had melons and onions and leeks and, and all these different things. And they're going, we were better off in Egypt. It's amazing how when we face the hard times with God, where God is saying, do you trust me? Will you rest in my love? Will you rest in, my, in me? We will oftentimes say, God, it was better back when. Now, when we were there, we were always ready to get out of it and to not seek and to, to look for it, everything to get out of it. But when we're in the middle of it and away from it, we tend to forget that it was not all that great. And we start looking and saying, God, well, you know, it was really better when, back when I could do these things. And when I was a sinner, I could do these. And before I knew you, I did this and it was fun. And we forget all that fun came out, of, came out of cost and really wasn't fun. We didn't enjoy it when we were there. And we're probably not going to enjoy it into the, into the future. And we need to be able to just sit back and rest in God and say, God, you are good. You have a good plan for me, God. I'm looking forward to what you have for me. And do not turn our eyes back to go back to Egypt. To look and say, God, there was great things. And here it says, you know, they're, they're, they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia. Their expectation, their hope was in Ethiopia. Their hope was in the strength that they could bring. And it was not enough. It was not going to deliver them. They could not get out by that. And then it says, and Egypt, their glory. You know, this is something that is just an amazing thought, that the idea that they would consider Egypt their glory when God was supposed to be their glory, when God was to be their splendor, when God was to be where they were to, supposed to be looking at. And yet they kept looking at the world as if the world was their hope, as if the world was their expectation. We do that way too often. We look at the world and say, God, you know, my real hope is, you know, we have people that, God, I'm looking forward to retirement. Uh, if I can get enough money in my 401k and my retirement accounts and, my, and get enough money in the bank. And, and God's saying, well, your supply is not in those things. Your supply is in me. Your hope is in me. Again, when we say that, we don't mean don't make any plans for the future. Don't, don't sit down and say, well, God, God will be the one that delivers me in the future, so I'll do nothing. But our hope is not in it. The economy could crash at any moment, leaving us penniless if all of our money is in the stock and our hope is in the stock. We will be totally without hope if that is where our hope is. Our hope is in the infinite God who is above and beyond all things. He will keep us. He will give us great blessing and, and lift us up if we just trust in him and not in the world. And we want to be careful because it is so easy to seek the world. We have a natural affinity to, check after, to seek after the world. Our flesh desires what the world has. Our flesh desires to do what the world wants done. And God is saying, trust in me. We go back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they did because they wanted more. So, Satan fell from the glory of heaven being the archangel of heaven because he wanted to be 
like God. He wanted the worship that was going to God and he sought after it. And then when he was rejected from heaven, he went after mankind to get them to fall from God, to fall away from God. And God had a redemptive plan for us. You know, amazingly, it's hard to understand, but God created man knowing we were going to fall and knowing that Jesus Christ, his son, God himself would have to die on the cross so that we could be saved and delivered from the destruction that we were brought into by rejecting him. And all through the scriptures, Israel keeps rejecting God over and over again. They reject God. They reject him as their, when he brings the, the judges into him. And they reject him And when Samuel is their last prophet and, and judge. And they say, we want a king. Then even when they brought their king in, originally Saul was not accepted. David was not accepted originally by, by most of the tribes. Over and over again, we see God being rejected. We go through the kings over and over again. We see the people rejecting God and worshiping idols. And then we'd have the king, the bad king, taking them further and further into the depravity of these idols. And then a good king would come along and start to heal the land and bring them into repentance, but never completely. And we see over and over the story. We see in, even in the New Testament with the disciples. We see Peter denying Jesus. You know, denying him to young girls. And finally going off into shame and having to be restored by Jesus after his resurrection. We see Judas Iscariot denying Jesus. And he goes and hangs himself rather than repenting. You know, how do we respond Peter and, and Judas were great examples of how to respond correctly and how to respond incorrectly. Peter repented. He had to be, come face to face with Jesus Christ. He was ready to walk away saying, it'll never, all, never be the same. I can't ever follow him again because I have messed up so bad. And yet God loved him. Jesus loved him enough to go and seek him out personally. Judas could have been redeemed if he had just desired it but he went off and he said this is it I'm going to commit suicide and he tried to hang himself and fell off the cliff and but God would have forgiven him why because nobody is beyond the saving grace of Jesus we hear it so often from people well I am just too bad to be saved I am just too far gone to be saved that is a lie from the pit of hell. Nobody is too far gone to be saved. God loves everybody and wants to reach out to them to bring them to him. He died for the world. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He has nobody that's beyond hope. All of sin has been placed under the blood of Christ and it's been forgiven. We just have to reach out and ask for it and accept that forgiveness and say, come into my life and dwell me. Clothe me with your righteousness because that is what gets us into heaven. The righteousness of Christ gets us into heaven and we get to be in there only because of his righteousness. Nothing that we have done will get us into heaven. Nothing that we will do will keep us out of heaven. It is just a matter of accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior and reaching out to him and saying, thank you. 
Thank you for your gift, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Come into my life and change who I am. Make me a new creation and help me live the life you want me to live. This is the wonderful grace of God. His grace. You know, nothing I do or don't do, all by His grace am I saved. All by His grace am I kept. All by His grace do I get salvation. We have people who think about losing their salvation. It, we, God gives us eternal life. We are saved and we are made perfect in Christ. And we've got to keep this in mind. He comes in, he makes us a new creation, he adopts us into his family, he, he makes us an heir of salvation, he gives us the Holy Spirit, the, the earnest of our reward to come. The, the first part of it is the Holy Spirit, which is a great gift to us. And yet, we look at it and find what God has in store for us is so wonderful. And so we want to keep this in mind. God gives us all that he has when we come to him. We accept that gift that he offers, and it's a gift. He says, here it is. You don't deserve it. And you know the great news is that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve God's grace, and yet he gives it, because if we deserved it, it would not be grace. It would be earnings. And we don't get anything through our own strength. We come to God and say, God, I am a sinner I don't deserve this. Please come into my heart. I accept your gift of salvation. And he comes in and indwells us and walks with us and guides us and leads us and explains things to us and teaches us. What a gift that he gives us. And then verse 6 on this, on Isaiah 20, it says, And the inhabitants of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, where we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? When they see Egypt fall to Assyria, the people will be devastated. Their hope was in Egypt. Their hope was in the world. When we see the world fall and fail, if that is our hope, we have no hope. We have no place to flee. But as Christians, we flee to God. We see this happening over and over again. We see people that look like they have everything, but they really have nothing. We see the superstar athletes. We see the superstar singers. We see the superstar actors and actresses. They seem to have everything. They have money, they have fame, they have possessions. And then we watch as their hope disappoints them. The world does not give them what they wanted. They seek everything in the world and the world fails them and they end up committing suicide, getting, getting, becoming alcoholics, becoming drug abusers. Why? Because they didn't get satisfied with what most people look and say, man, if I could just have this. I would be happy. No, you will not be happy. Our contentment must be in God. If it's not in God, nothing will satisfy. And this is why it is important for us to be able to understand without God, we have nothing that will make us happy. My contentment must be in God. My joy is in God. My love is in God. My life must be in God. And when I am faith rest with Him, I have everything. When I'm sitting in the finished work of Christ, that God did 
all the work. I don't have to do anything. What a blessing I have when I just rest in Christ. And I watch what he does and I let him minister. I let him be who he is and I get the blessing. And my hope is in God because he is my all in all. With him I have everything. Without him I have nothing. And without him we are not worth anything. Jesus was the first of the resurrection. And we look forward to the day when we will be resurrected and brought into the kingdom of Christ with Jesus because of what he did. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the, all that you've done for us. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to just have the abundance of your love. And Lord, help us to share that with others as we go about our business and our days. In Jesus' name, amen.